This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by the Walton Family Foundation, actively working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Humans are changing the planet in unprecedented ways. Natural resources are being utilized at record levels to support exponential population growth, a faltering food system, and a struggling global economy. Washington Post Live welcomed two internationally recognized authorities on climate change, former President of Ireland Mary Robinson and former Executive Secretary of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change Christiana Figueres to examine what is being done to address human impact on the natural environment and the disproportionate burden placed on vulnerable populations worldwide. Let's listen. Good afternoon and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Francis Steed Sellers, a senior writer at the Washington Post. Today's program is about conservation and sustainability. And I have with me here today two great global leaders, and I gather great friends, on climate change. Please join me in welcoming Christina Figueres, who led the UN Convention that brokered the 2015 Paris Climate Change Agreement. Also with us here today is Mary Robinson, the Honorable Mary Robinson, who is Ireland's first female president and the former High Commissioner for Human Rights at the UN. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you, Francis. Thank you for inviting us. Oh, we're delighted to have you. I'd like to start by stepping back a little bit from the uh, climate change question. We've been so focused on COVID and the pandemic around the world and here in the US that I think some people may have lost track of why 2020 is such a critical year. Um, and maybe, uh, Ms. Figueres, you could address this. Um, why is it a critical year according to the goals you set up in 2015? Well, 2020 is actually a critical year across many different issues. It's a critical year for climate. It was a critical year for biodiversity. It was a critical year for oceans. It was a critical year because, unfortunately, we have been delaying way too long on all of these issues. And 2020 is the start of what we call the decisive decade, specifically on climate. This decade where, that we are starting, the decade of the 20s, is the decade in which we must, absolutely must, be able to cut our emissions by one half by the end of the decade, 2030. If we do that, Francis, we actually open up a path to a very, very positive world, which much more safety, better health, better um, social justice, certainly better environmental conditions, and more economic growth. But if we don't, we condemn ourselves to a world of increasingly physical destruction and human misery that is very difficult to imagine. So this is it. 2020 is the start of the decisive decade. Wow. Thank you for putting that into some perspective. And Mrs. Robinson, uh, what does it mean uh, in terms of these goals that President Trump has withdrawn from the agreement, from the Paris Agreement? In November, that will become formal. And I'd love to understand from you what the implications of those steps are. It obviously doesn't help to have the leader of the United States at the federal level uh, stepping back from an agreement which all of the countries, 195 countries under Christiana Figueres, my dear friend, um, had agreed in Paris in December 2015. Luckily, many states in the United States, many cities, many businesses, a great deal of civil society say they are still in the Paris Agreement anyway. And in fact, 
The day after the presidential election is the formal day when the United States would withdraw. And it's clear that the other uh, presidential candidate, if I could put it that way, uh, pre uh, uh, Vice President Biden, has made it clear he would stay in. So it all depends on the next election, whether that takes effect. But I do agree with um, Christiana when she talks about the importance of now and of 2020. And I have to say, you know, in January, I was actually quite, uh, you know, depressed. And I'm not allowed to be depressed because I have a new role or relatively new role as chair of the elders who were brought together by Nelson Mandela. Uh, he wanted his legacy to be continued on peace and human rights. And Archbishop Tutu was our first chair. Kofi Annan was our second chair. I'm now chair of the elders. And we're not allowed to be depressed because we're supposed to bring hope. But I wasn't feeling very hopeful in January because countries didn't seem to be stepping up to the ambition needed, as Christiana said, to have global emissions in 10 years. And actually, then, co then COVID hit. And I now am a little bit more hopeful because of the lessons of COVID. Let me ask you specifically about one leader who you asked to step up. Um, Justin Trudeau in Canada. Were you hoping that Canada might fill the vo void of leadership left by the United States? Well, Canada certainly can play a role, and I'm glad to see they are, uh, you know, stepping up and, uh, you know, moving back from what would be bad decisions uh, which were being threatened in relation to a huge mine there, which I wrote an op-ed about. Um, but um, uh, Canada is an important country from that point of view. But I, I really think. We need to uh, understand the moment we're in and why we're there. Um, if I may, I'd like to explain why it's so important to address the climate crisis, which is still looming, because I always talk about climate justice, and that stems from the injustice of climate change. And I think people should understand there are probably five layers to that injustice. Your video showed a little of it. but. First of all, it disproportionately affects the poorest countries and poorest communities. So there's a racial injustice linked up there. Secondly, the gender dimensions within that, because women have unequal roles in societies and they don't have land rights, but and they have to go further in the drought for water, etc. And they have to try and build resilience in their communities, as so many are doing. The third injustice is the one that children have reminded us of, the intergenerational injustice. The fourth is one that is more subtle, but very real. The injustice of the pathways to development, because the rich countries, the industrialized world, we built our economies on fossil fuel, and now we have to wean ourselves off fossil fuel. But developing countries, and Christiana will remember this, before Paris promised to go as green as possible, clean energy, but they said we will need the investment, we will need the technology, we will need the skills, we will need the training. And they haven't got enough of that. And they are finding oil and gas and indeed coal. And what are they to do to take their people out of poverty? So we need a solidarity, which we're still not um, seeing. And the fifth injustice is the injustice against nature herself. Um, the loss of biodiversity, which Christiana mentioned, the extinction of species. So. This is the reason why it's so important. All of that is on the negative side, but Christiana and myself love to talk on the positive side, and she's particularly good on the positive side. Well, let me turn to Ms. Figueres right now, if I may, and ask about the parallels. Some of the injustices uh, Mrs. Robinson just brought up 
are playing out as well in the COVID pandemic. We've seen a disproportionate impact on the poorest people in the world. Does that give you reason to for hope, Ms. Figueres, or how do we how do we process these parallel injustices that have been so clear in these twin disasters? I, I do think that there's reason for hope here, hope that we are learning lessons that we should have learned over the past few decades, but that perhaps because climate change is more chronic and COVID is more acute. Everything with COVID actually happens in a very, very short period of time, including the lessons learned. And so we are definitely hoping that first that there's going to be lessons learned about the need for collaboration, about the role of science, about um, making very, very careful decisions that include so many factors in that decision making process. But also, we're very much hoping for recovery packages that as the world comes out of the first wave of the health crisis, we're all moving into the economic crisis that comes after the health crisis. And that economic crisis needs to be met. And we know that we already have $12 trillion that have been allotted to recovery packages around the world. And it could actually go up to $20 trillion. Never, never in the history have we seen that level of capital injected into the economy. Hence, it is very, very important that that capital be very wisely injected because that level of capital injected over the next 18 months will define the characteristics and the structure of the economy worldwide over decades to come. Now, in the well, United States, if I can just come to, to the U.S., right. the um, U.S. administration has approved a $3 trillion recovery program that is actually a huge concern because it includes the purchasing of debt of fossil fuel companies. Now, if you are hit by a storm, the last thing you do is you go out onto the ocean and you buy boats or ships that are actually sinking, or in fact, that were simping, sinking even before the storm. If you're going to take advantage of the storm, you use the storm to figure out which boats are actually more resilient and more robust. And those are the ones that you invest in. The coal industry was already on its knees before COVID, and it is even more on its knees now. It does not require the U.S. administration to go out there and purchase debt, especially from coal companies. That is absolute folly. Now, the House has passed a $1.5 trillion recovery program that is green, that actually focuses on the clean technologies and on the boom in the clean tech that can bring immediate shovel-ready jobs and that is going to build the economy for years to come. What a difference between those two visions. Right. Um, one of that was exactly what I wanted to ask you about. Um, one of the, the huge issues, of course, after the Great Recession of the 1930s and, and World War II was this emphasis on, on uh, fossil fuel based growth, growth all the way. There was some change after 2008 with, with um, a redirection towards more green investment. But are there countries in the world that are taking the current stimulus packages and spending it in ways that you see as wise? For example, the EU perhaps, or uh, where does the US fit in comparison with other countries? I think well, the EU is a very good example. Sorry. 
Oh, yeah. The no, EU is a very ahead. good example because you have the Green New Deal of the EU right. with its um, very important just transition fund, a fund that enables the, um, the, the uh, transition for workers as well, workers in coal in particular, and also ultimately in oil and gas. Um, it has a the Green New Deal, it has a, a, a biodiversity strategy, it has now its recovery package, which it is aligning with the Green New Deal, possibly not as much as some of us would like, but it certainly is acknowledging the need to align the recovery so that we come out of COVID um, with um, at the right decisions um, looking to the future. COVID it in is, some senses. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to agree with Mary because honestly, the EU is such a leader in this. They have taken very, very tough decisions, but they have been consulted profoundly and they have really understood that when the economy is on its knees, that is the moment to inject all the innovation that is going to be necessary for that economy over the next few decades. So they're actually taking advantage of this emergency and creating it into the opportunity that it is. That is the vision that is sadly lacking in the United States. Now, it's not only in Europe and in industrialized countries. To come back to our continent in Latin America, Chile is doing the same thing. China is beginning to move in that direction as well. And I think the United States should be very concerned because if China continues the leadership that it already has in all of this clean tech, the U.S. is just going to be wiped off the table with respect to its competitiveness in all of this clean tech. The U.S. should be very worried. So let me ask you a little bit about one of the sort of accidental outcomes of this disaster. I was speaking to a CEO the other day um, about travel. And of course, you know, very few people are traveling. Um, Zoom has become the way of conducting uh, conferences like this, discussions like this, and also many business meetings. Could Zoom be the answer to some of the climate's problems in the upcoming years? Well, certainly, I've been saying quite truthfully, I was traveling too much because like Christiana, I was very keen to persuade as many people as possible. Now you can persuade by Zoom. Not, you know, I think there are times when you have to be face to face. And indeed, the European Union found that they had to get the heads of state together to agree the recovery package. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been able to do it. But it is actually a very good uh, move that we can now convene globally and in exchange and listen to each other globally and not have to use the emissions to travel. And that, that's very helpful. So that said, Ms. Figueres, I'd love to ask you about the airline industry. I mean, they've made efforts to um, renegotiate agreements about carbon emissions. Are you seeing other industries under strain uh, trying to rethink um, their approach to a greener future? Well, the airline industry is, as you say, a very, very good example. Um, in the United States, sadly, the airline industry is not being uh, invited or coaxed into rethinking itself. But in other regions, in other geographies, they are. And uh, it is definitely true that the airline industry uh, will never return to what it used to be last year. They know that. And therefore, they have to reinvent themselves. They will not be able to continue the business model that they had, that they were basically deriving all of their profits and all of their um, capital flow from the sale of business, uh, business seats, uh, business class seats. That is just no longer going to be the case. As Mary has already pointed out, 
all of us, most people who travel for business will be really thinking about it twice because it's not good for our health, it's not good for emissions, it's not good for the wallet. Um, and we will be able to do a substantial portion of the work that we used to do in person, we will be able to do it like this. Now, that does not mean that you can substitute air freight or air travel for those who want to travel to beyond belief beautiful areas in the world to have the experience of being either in nature or in history. That travel will very likely come back. The question is, how are the airlines going to make sure that their operations on the ground are 100%, 100% carbon free because they can do that? And how are they going to make sure that, for example, that their short haul flights can move over to zero emission fuels, of which there are many in development. Long, long haul will take longer, but short haul flights and operations on the ground have to move down to zero emissions ASAP or otherwise they're not going to have popular support. Do you see, do either of you see other industries that face equally transformative futures because of this, uh, the decisions they're making now? I was very interested yesterday um, to see that BP is changing itself from an international oil company to an international integrated energy company and has committed to be zero carbon by 2050 at the latest. Now, when this was announced some months ago, there was a lot of skepticism and maybe there still should be, because, but we, we have seen much more realistic, uh, you know, detailed measures that are going to be taken by a big oil company. Now we need that to happen. And you know, what we need is oil companies also to begin to fund just transition so that their workers, whom they will have to lay off, they'll have to lose their jobs, uh, will also be included in a solution. And that already should be happening much more than it is in coal in the United States. Instead, coal plants are closing and they're forgetting the workers. So let me take the discussion a little bit from the from these uh, areas talking about big business to how you would address somebody on the ground level who said they can't afford, who would suggest they cannot afford carbon taxes and green policies because of the immediate economic impact on their businesses. How do you manage the working person who comes to you and challenges your globally uh, valid ideas? And one way to think about this, Francis, is to think about carbon emissions as wasted carbon or inefficient carbon. And when you look at, let's say, your home, uh, if you live in Europe, or in fact, if you live in the United States, chances are that your home is completely inefficient, that it is not properly insulated. And hence, the very scarce resources that are in your pocket are actually going to cooling the park in front of your house or cooling your neighbor's house or in the winter, heating up someone else's property. That is ridiculous. So efficiency in both our homes and our offices is one very clear way to avoid carbon emissions and be careful with your income. Carbon efficiency equals energy efficiency. They're both the same thing. And so it's not true that everything that we do to address climate change is actually a cost. Many of the actions that we can take are actually savings that we can take. And that we need to begin to understand. Addressing climate change, both at the personal as well as at the global level, 
is not a burden. It is definitely a responsibility because of our responsibility toward the future generations and toward younger generations. It's definitely a responsibility, but it doesn't have to be a burden. It can be an opportunity. Are there economic incentives to incorporating green energy and infrastructure into recovery plans? In the European Union, yes, that's exactly the program that Mary was referring to. That's exactly what they're doing. They're giving that kind of incentives. Those are not in place in the United States yet. Could I um, just inject a, a point that I think the three of us of might enjoy? Um, as um, Christiana said, we can learn from COVID. And one of the lessons is that government and leadership matters. And it has been very evident that women-led governments are doing better. Uh, you know, there are you know, problems that COVID can recur, but I think Angela Merkel in Germany and the prime ministers of Norway, Finland, Denmark, Iceland, all women are doing New well. Uh, New Zealand, uh, um, Jacinda Ardern, Taiwan, um, the president of Taiwan, um, taking tough decisions, listening to the science and bringing their people with them, uh, being trusted that they're actually doing what is needed at this point in time. And I think women's leadership is actually um, at, a, at a good moment now, uh, which ought to be appreciated. So women's leadership is also a reflection of a population that will vote for a woman leader, right? Well, I think so, yes. I, I think that, you know, once we have the examples, and we have more and more now, um, I think we're, we're seeing a, a real change. Uh, but there are still barriers, as we know. And, the, you know, even in your... Um, you know, the, the uh, choice, which is going to be a woman, apparently, of a vice president candidate by uh, Vice President Biden. It is awful to see uh, what is coming out in social media, et cetera, and the sexism of the remarks that have been made, even by senior figures who should know better. Um, it, it is quite shocking, but it's still, it, that's the way it is. That's why women have to try harder and do better. <laughs> Right. <laughs> well, here you are with two, two female leaders on this topic. I'm very proud to be with you on this screen. But tell me, Ms. Figueres, what are some of the specific recommendations for integrating economic recovery and climate change solutions? Well, as, as we said before, there has never been an opportunity to do that that is as immediate as the green recovery. It's just unbelievable. It's almost as though the universe had told us, oh, you don't want to learn, you don't want to really do the right thing. Well, here's a slap in the face so that you'll actually wake up. I cannot stress enough the importance of these recovery packages that, as I said, could go up to 20 trillion over the next 18 months. You see, we thought that we had almost a 10-year period to make all of these investments decisions. That period has now contracted into 18 months. All of this money is going to be decided over the next 18 months. So each of those dollars that goes into recovery, that goes into the different airline industry, airline uh, companies, that goes into infrastructure, that goes into um, banking system, that goes into all of the different sectors that need financial support for sure, they should all be put through one very clear question. Does this contribute to long-term economic growth and stability? Stability understood writ large, social stability, economic stability, environmental stability. If the answer to that question is yes, 
that is a dollar well invested. If the answer to that question is no, that dollar should not be invested. It's as clear and simple as that. Right. And it's as right. urgent as that. Let me ask you both a question that came in from one of our viewers today, and I'm going to read it to you. This is a question from Martin Hatch from New York who asks, what are the obstacles in developing and executing a worldwide Marshall Plan for sustainable energy and energy conservation? Mrs. Robinson, would you like to take a first crack at that one? Oh, I love the question because wouldn't it be wonderful if we had that level of uh, real cooperation globally. We kind of had it in 2015 because we got the 2030 agenda in September um, 2015 and I wear this badge um, for the sustainable development goals and then uh, we got the Paris Climate Agreement under um, the great stewardship of, of Christiana. Um, we, we would do much better even if we had global collaboration on COVID itself, on the development and availability to everybody of a vaccine as a global public good. But, you know, um, we we're, we're, I wish that we could be in a world of a global Marshall Plan. Instead, I think we're going to see different areas doing what they're doing. I do agree with uh, Christiana. I was worried about China going into coal uh, in its recovery. It seems to be now moving more towards wind and solar. And, and, and it is a leader in the world on clean energy. And certainly the European Union is giving good leadership. But I doubt if we have a world at the moment um, that we can have a global Marshall Plan, much as it would be wonderful if we could. Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts, Mr. Figueres, on that? If well, we... I, I, well, as usual, I totally agree with Mary. Um, <laughs> 2015 was really the year in which the world wrote its business plan, its long-term global business plan. That business plan is the combination between the SDGs and the Agenda 2030 and the Paris Agreement. Now, that was a very important component, and we would not even know where we had to go if we didn't have that plan. But sadly, when it comes to the financial chapter of that business plan, that chapter still remains blank, or at least it remains not completely written. Now, we do have some capital that is beginning to move in the direction that we need to. We have, for example, the Alliance of Asset Owners, that is up to 40 institutional investors, totaling $5 trillion, who totally understand that that business plan is one that has to be financed. And they have committed to having an investment portfolio of zero carbon by 2050 at the latest, which means they are the owners or partial owners of almost all company. There's something called universal owners where they own a piece of almost every company, every publicly listed company in the world. So they're exercising their pressure as investors and shareholders on those companies for those companies to become carbon neutral. Now, that's a very good start. That's a very good start because that means the owners of these companies are actually having this very tough conversation with those companies. Why? because they understand that they have to bring down their risk. This is not because they're in love with the planet and they want to save the planet. This is not about, you know, that kind of uh, wonderful la-la land that they would say. No, this is in total protection of their assets. They know that the only way to protect their assets and in fact to grow their assets is to bring down the risk of exposure to climate change. They know that. 
They have understood that. Insurance companies have understood that. So they are pressing their companies in order to protect their assets and their value. They are pressing the companies to do the right thing. Now, unfortunately, it's only 40 institutions, right? It should be every single one. Now, they've only been in existence for a couple of years as a group, and they are bringing every day more and more. So this is a process. And unfortunately, we don't have the political conditions to do something like a Marshall Plan. I think eventually, five years from now, we will look back and we will see the many different components that over time made up a sort of Marshall Plan, but we're right in the middle of it now. And it is not orchestrated top down like the Marshall Plan was. Um, it's actually something that is occurring bottom up in different sectors as each sector realizes that the risks are way too high. Thank you both very much for joining me today. Unfortunately, that's all I've got time for. Um, I'd like to thank you first, uh, Ms. Figueres, for joining me today. It was a delight to hear, hear your views. Thank you. Thank you very much for bringing both Mary and me together. <laughs> and Mrs. Robinson, it was a delight to, to see you across the Atlantic as well. So welcome to the show and thank you for joining us. Thank you Thank very you, much. Ben. I enjoyed it as always with Christiana. Um, we soldier on together and we'll continue yeah. to. <laughs> uh, Go ahead. Thank you for. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.